0: Final time, I ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. The very last chapter of this book, chapter thirteen, will be our text for this morning's message. Nehemiah chapter twelve, as we preached through last Sunday, is the high point of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah the pinnacle of the whole history that God has preserved for us in the scriptures. There's a dedication ceremony in chapter 12 of Nehemiah, where they celebrate the completion of the wall and the completion of the city of Jerusalem being rebuilt, the reestablishment of temple worship, and the re-establishment of the altar. It was a high form of worship. It was a Splendid ceremony. It would have been a fitting end to the saga of Ezra and Nehemiah's leadership in restoring the exiles back to the city of Jerusalem. But we have Nehemiah chapter 13 in our Bibles. Oh, if, if Nehemiah would have ended at twelve we've got Nehemiah 13 that we have to deal with. In one sense, it's very regrettable that this chapter is in our Bibles. It's a hard read. But in another sense, it's a very gracious gift of God for him to have Nehemiah write this into his journals and Ezra to pass it on to us in the canon of Scripture, because we do Desperately need to be aware of who we are. And we look into Nehemiah chapter 13, and and I'm going to tell you this morning, we see ourselves vividly. There aren't too many passages like Nehemiah 13 in the Bible, (laughs) there's others. There's not too many that are like this passage of Scripture. This is a bold and tenacious and vigorous passage of Scripture. And so with that mindset, I ask you to turn very attentively to this chapter with me and let's read. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent." Got to insert a reminder here, when we see foreign descent here, this is not racial, this is religious. These are people that do not call God, God. And people, the people of God are to separate from those foreigners. So right out of the gate, in these first three verses, we pick up in the middle of a worship assembly in Jerusalem. Some say it might have been chapter 12's assembly. I think it was sometime later. The book of Moses is read, and as they hear God's commands, they realize that once again they are disobedient. They've allowed the Ammonites and the Moabites into their assembly, and they have defied Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 6. We're not going to go there this morning, but there God says, Do not let the Ammonites or Moabites into your midst. Because they wronged you in a time of need. And they sent Balaam to curse you. And I turned it into a blessing. Don't let them into your midst. So the people, realizing at the reading of Deuteronomy that they violated Deuteronomy, move swiftly to honor God's word and obey Him. They reform themselves. And the source of their reformation was God and His word. The title of this message this morning is Always Reforming. We're going to learn that we must always, always be reforming until we die or until Christ comes again. That's what Nehemiah chapter 13 teaches us. So here we have these people in a gathered worship, realizing they're defying God's word, and they reform to comply with his commands. And then we go to verse 4. Now before this, and what unfolds through the rest of the chapter, is shocking. Evil. The people were not so faithful with the law of God in their lives before this. And extreme measures had to be taken to get them to where verses 1 through 3 could even happen. And so we're going to look at 4 through the rest of the chapter very intentionally, 4 through 31. And I want to set the table by explaining where Nehemiah is in all of this. It's found right there in verse 6. While this was taking place, we're going to look at what this is in just a moment. I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time, I asked leave of the king and came back to Jerusalem. So Nehemiah was gone from the city that he had led to rebuild. He has gone for a season. He had honored a pledge way back in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 6. The king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me when I gave him a time. Nehemiah is honoring that pledge. I will return, Artaxerxes. And in his absence, we understand from chapter 13 that the people of God ran amok. So Nehemiah asks Artaxerxes for permission to revisit Jerusalem, and the king once again grants him leave. And he comes back to discover what he says in verses 7, 17, and 27. He discovers great evil amongst the people that he led with Ezra to Reformation. And so here this morning we're going to look at four deadly compromises that the people of God made in the absence of Nehemiah's leadership. Four deadly compromises. The first one starts in verse 4. It's a compromise in the fact that they made an unholy alliance. Look at this. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah... Prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. Look at verse 7. I came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. It's shocking. And he calls it evil. The discovery? Tobiah, the enemy, is among us. Tobiah was one of God's greatest opponents and he was a severe adversary of the people of Israel let me give you a brief biographical sentence of Tobiah back in Nehemiah 2:10, when Sanballat and Tobiah learned that the walls are being rebuilt it says when they heard this it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel They don't like the people of Israel. Tobiah is an enemy of the people of Israel and therefore an enemy of God's. And because of that, he's an enemy of Nehemiah's. In fact, he and Sanballat are Nehemiah's greatest adversaries. Listen to this, Nehemiah chapter 6, 17. In those days, the nobles of Judah, these are Israelites, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. And Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara. And his son, it goes on to say, married another priest's daughter. And they spoke of his good deeds. These nobles spoke to Tobiah of Nehemiah's good deeds in my presence. I'm I'm sorry. The people of Judah spoke of Tobiah's good deeds in Nehemiah's presence and reported Nehemiah's words to Tobiah. And Tobiah, therefore, sent letters to Nehemiah to make him afraid. It's shocking that that happened back earlier in the saga. People of Israel embrace Tobiah and almost flaunt him in Nehemiah's face. So much so that now there's letters happening and Tobiah is mocking Nehemiah to discourage him saying, I've got your people on my side. And yet he is an adversary of God's and the people of God. With this background, I want you to look at the real estate that Eliasheb gave Tobiah to live in. It says in verse 5, a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And it says that in this chamber is where there should have been stored all the materials and all the vessels for worshiping the holy God. And yet, Tobiah lives there. He's living where holy offerings and holy vessels were to be stored for the worship of the holy God that he's an adversary of. He's living in the nerve center. He's occupying the hard drive of Jerusalem. And he's corrupting it. Eliashib has brought a wolf into the sheepfold. And his evil influence cannot and will not be contained right there. So what's Nehemiah going to do? This is what he's come back to discover. I want you to know Nehemiah is in a leadership challenge that is common to leaders in God's people in the church every single day. And here's the question no doubt that Nehemiah had to ask himself. Am I going to deal with this? Am I going to confront this? Or am I going to let it go? Every leader asks that question. Am I going to confront this problem? Or am I going to let it slide? It's a moment of truth for Nehemiah. Verse 8 tells us what he did. I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I gave orders. And they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Pow. On the spot, immediate response. He's not going to let this pass. He's angry because the holy temple of God has been defiled. And he's swift and he's severe in taking action to cleanse the temple chambers and to restore in those chambers what belongs there. Holy vessels and holy materials that are used to worship the holy God. Let's look at the second compromise. Let's just build a case here now. The second compromise Nehemiah discovers is the people's failure to give. The people are robbing Assets from God. Verse 10, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. He comes back to discover the people of God have defied and broken their covenant pledge to God. Back in Nehemiah 9.38, the people said, we make a firm covenant in writing. In Nehemiah chapter 10.39, we're told what is in writing, and it's this. The people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. In writing, Nehemiah comes back and they've defied that pledge. The Levites have left their post because they were deprived of the needed support that God had installed in the giving commands for temple worship. And it says they fled to their fields and instead of being Levites in the temple, they were Farmers in their fields so that they could have food to eat. And so the storehouse was empty of supplies and staff. And by the way, as we saw a minute ago, it's filled with Tobiah and his furniture. What we see here is the compounding of sin. Do you see that not obeying God and giving to the storehouses of the temple made them vacant? It made them vacant of even personnel, the Levites and the singers who were to be working in there. The personnel are gone, the materials are gone because of their sin of robbing from God. And because it's all empty, they can sin a second time and allow Tobiah to live in there. Do you see the compounding of sin. One sin enables another sin to pile up. What's Nehemiah going to do? Is he going to confront this or is he going to let it pass? Gosh, I've already gotten after him on that one deal. I can't come a second time. That's too quick. That's too rapid. They're going to think I'm an ogre. Well, verse 12, Nehemiah says, So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. And then all of Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mattaniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me. Oh, my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. He didn't let it slide. He was convicted and he was courageous and he confronted on behalf of the holy God the people. He confronts them directly, not vaguely, not with ambiguity. Not, hey, can we look at this? No. He confronts it boldly. And he, set, and he appoints qualified and reliable men to make sure that this doesn't happen again. First, that it gets remediated. And second, that it doesn't happen again. And he assigns to these reliable men very specific duties and responsibilities. And he sets them up to be faithful to God. What a great leader. And after he does all of that, verse 14, he commits his final reform on this issue to God and his sovereignty. And he says, God, remember me concerning this and do not wipe out my good deeds. Keep them in place, Father. I've been faithful. Keep them in place. Let's look at the third compromise. Sabbath violations are discovered. And Nehemiah sees that the people are robbing time from God. Verse 15, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Oh, These people have a problem with the Sabbath. He discovers again that they've broken their covenant pledge to God. Nehemiah 9.38 We make a firm covenant in writing. Nehemiah 10.31 And here's what's in writing. If the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. They committed that to writing before God. And here they're doing it. And Nehemiah is shocked upon his return. What's he going to do? <laughs> is he going to let it pass? Is he tired of bringing correction to these people? Is he say, to heck with them? God, they're all yours. I'm out. Or is he going to lead? Let's just let the Scriptures... Show us what he did. Verse 15, And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and I said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Wow. What a response. He addresses the Israelites and the foreigners he addresses the people of God and the opponents of God. And then he asks God to remember his faithful, steadfast, watchman-like work over the people of God. He reminds the people in this passage that this is what brought the exile to begin with. Sabbath neglect, remember they were exiled for 70 years because God said, I will get my 70 Sabbaths one way or another. In fact, I'm going to get one for every year, 70 years. And then I'll return my people to my place. He reminds them of this and then he secures the city and he threatens the opponents of God. If you do this again, I'll lay hands on you because God is holy and these people are to be holy and you're corrupting them and I will not stand by and allow it and he asks God in his sovereignty to remember his final reforms Let's look at one more. There's a fourth one, I'm sorry to say. Compromise number four. Intermarriage again. The people of God have again yoked themselves to unbelievers, to opponents of God. 23. In those days, also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. <clears throat> and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Oh. That's horrifying. He's discovered they've broken another of their covenant pledges. Nehemiah 9.38 We make a firm covenant in writing. Nehemiah 10.30 We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. They ran right through the covenant pledge. They trampled it. And look at what he says. There's some details here that merit our attention. This is why it's so urgent. The children do not know the language of Judah. That's called Hebrew. And guess why they need to know Hebrew? They need to be able to read God's Hebrew Bible. But they don't know the language. So they can't read it. And they can't hear it. And so when they depart from it, They can't reform to it. It's double jeopardy. If you can't read it and hear it, you won't do it. If you can't read it and hear it, you won't return to it. They will drift from God's commands and they will be unable to reform unless great intervention is provided. Boy, it doesn't take long for compromise to corrupt, does it? This happened in one generation. doesn't take long for subtle, gentle, slight tweaks to our faithfulness to God to corrupt us thoroughly and maybe even ultimately. The world corrupts us so quickly if we compromise and join it. What's I going to do? Man, I've done three already. Do I have a fourth one in me? Do I have enough strength and enough stamina and enough conviction to go after these people once more and address this issue a final time? Verse 25. (laughs) And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Wow. Wow. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take daughters, their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And you're not like him either. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Basically, he says, Solomon's the greatest, and this didn't work out for him. You're not the greatest. You're not as wise as Solomon. You're not as favored by God as Solomon. This is not going to work out. Verse 28, it gets worse. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Sanballat, Tobiah. Great adversaries of God and His people married in right here. Therefore, I chased Him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. That's severe. Is he going to confront or not? I would say he confronted. Of all the Israelite compromises. Listen. Of all the Israelite compromises. This is the one that drives Nehemiah to the most extreme action. This sin, as Nehemiah says, has haunted the people of God from old days till present. From Solomon, the wisest man that ever was, to present. This sin of marrying unbelievers has haunted these people. And So his severe reaction is one of cursing them. When these people said, we enter into a firm covenant in writing, they said in that text over there, we enter into a curse and an oath. I'm here to tell you today that Nehemiah is the messenger of God uttering the curse that they voluntarily went into in writing this firm covenant. He then requires them to make an oath to God. It's a new oath and it's the oath that they've already made. We won't intermarry with people that don't follow Yahweh, God. He gets physical. He himself says, beat some of them. He pulls out their hair, which is an Old Testament sign of shaming someone. You shave a man's beard in the Old Testament, he's been shamed. You shave his head, ultimate shame. These people need to get the message that they are defying God grossly. And this sin, so severe that it is, and so ancient that it is in these people, merits such an extreme response from Nehemiah. By the way, I do not recommend any of us yanking hair or beating people when we see one another living in sin. This is the Old Testament, and it's Nehemiah and we aren't. Their intermarriage is so bad that it's entered even into the priesthood. And this, I do believe, also drove him to such an extreme reaction. So there you have it. Four radical compromises. Deadly, deadly compromises. And we come to verse 30 where Nehemiah provides a reformation summary, if you will. Thus, I cleansed them... From everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. It's as if Nehemiah is finishing his work in Jerusalem. Three times he's looked upon what he has done, and he's asked God to remember him and to bless him for what he's done. Here in verse 31, this final, remember me, oh my God, for good. It feels like his final words to the reformation of the people of Israel in Jerusalem. He's asking God one final time to bless his work Keep it in place. Don't let it relax. And he says, remember me, O oh my God, for good. I tie Nehemiah to Peter, the apostle, who wrote to Jesus' under-shepherds in First Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, I think Nehemiah is asking when he says, remember me, oh my God, for good. I think Nehemiah is asking for that unfading crown of glory that leaders of God's people get if they lead them faithfully and boldly. You know, there's a question that's got to be asked here. I know there's tension in the room just for a moment about beating and pulling hair and Has Nehemiah been too severe in his response to the evil of the Israelites? What do you think? I I think from the text of Scripture, it's right to say that he's not been too hard and he's not been too soft. We watched him build up through four compromises. And each time... He asks God to remember him for good. So we don't see any hint of sin in his heart. We don't see any hint of sin in the text. And we attribute this text to the inspiration of God. There's no reference in the New Testament to this and say, remember how Nehemiah overreacted. There's nothing in Scripture that says that. In fact, we've got three times this man praying, Remember me, God, after he took severe actions. Remember me for good. Don't let this go away, Lord. The way Nehemiah reacts to sin in these four compromises needs to establish for us a pattern of how we must respond to sin in our lives and hearts. What evil are you tempted to allow to reside in your heart? What evil are you flirting with and letting linger in your life in the chambers of God's temple in your heart? What part of the world are you yoking yourself to? We need to be in our private personal lives like Nehemiah on those issues we must be severe with sin in our life if your right eye causes you to sin tear it out and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell jesus matthew 5:29 Nehemiah did that with Israel. We must do that in our personal lives. Congregationally, we must be cautious of who we allow into our membership and into our leadership. The leadership, spiritual leadership of Israel, intermarried with Tobiah and Sanballat. We're warned of this. Paul in 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. You hear it? This is exactly what was going on in Israel. 2,500 years ago. I want you to consider the responses of Ezra and Nehemiah. I'm still on this. Did did Nehemiah act too severely here? Let's look at the responses of Ezra and Nehemiah to the gross evil of intermarriage because they both had to contend with this issue in their leadership roles. Back in Ezra chapter 10, verse 1, Ezra has discovered the people have married foreign wives, unbelievers. And it says that while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. So Ezra's response when he discovers this great evil is weeping and confession and falling down on the ground and mourning And he inspires the people to join him in that. That's a different response than Nehemiah gave, isn't it? Nehemiah pulled hair out (laughs) and beat on people. And Nehemiah fell to the ground and wept. So much so that Shechaniah and other leaders addressed Ezra in verse four, and, he, and they said, look, we're wrong. We know that we're wrong. We're repentant just like you are. We need you to arise for it is your task. We are with you. Be strong and do it. And what they are asking him to do is reform us. And reformation happened. Yet they caved again here, didn't they? I compare Ezra's weeping over this sin to Jesus'. Lament over Jerusalem as he's heading to her to hang on her cross. We read this in Matthew 23. Jesus, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. It's a weeping Jesus. Jesus. It was a weeping Ezra. On the flip side, we've got Nehemiah. Nehemiah has a deep grief like Ezra's. Ezra's was deep and inward, and it spilled over for people to see. Nehemiah's was deep and outward grief, and it spilled onto the people. He said, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair and I made them take an oath in the name of God. That is a very, very different response from Ezra on the same issue. One guy right, one guy wrong. Well, I compare Nehemiah's response to Jesus Christ also. Because when Jesus went into that temple in Jerusalem that he lamented over, We read this. In the temple He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And He told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make My Father's house a house of trade. And John says His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. There's Nehemiah. So I see both of these men acting in ways that Christ 2,000 years later, uh, 500 years later, 455 years later would act. Both responses seen in Ezra and Nehemiah are practiced by Jesus Christ towards Jerusalem and the temple. And speaking of Jesus Christ, something greater than Ezra and Nehemiah is here. Ultimately this passage shows us that we need a savior. We can have a book of the law But it will not save us because we cannot keep it. So, our hope is not in law keeping. Our hope is not in verbal or written pledges, firm pledges in writing. Our hope is not in those. Our hope must be rooted and grounded in something greater. And His name is Jesus Christ. And we need to see from Nehemiah 13 that we are desperate for a substitute who can die the death that we deserve though He committed none of the sins that we committed. And that in His name we go to the Father and confess our sins and ask for forgiveness and we get it. And so this morning if you're not a believer as you come here, you need a radical reformation. You need to reform to the God who made you in His image and likeness. And you can't do it. You cannot do it. You need someone to do it for you. And I'm introducing you this morning to Jesus Christ, the one and only that can reform you once and for all. you're a believer here this morning, you have to wake up to this chapter 13 of Nehemiah and understand that that is biographically about you too. We still contend with sin on this side of professing faith in the substitute Jesus Christ. And we still have to be a people all about reforming our lives to Christ. And it comes through confession and repentance and separating ourselves from the things of this world and honoring and obeying the words of God. Oh, if Nehemiah chapter 13 didn't exist in our Bibles. too bad, but how great is it that it is there too, because this wakes us up and shows us we need to be contending for the faith once delivered to all the saints in our personal lives as well as our congregational lives. Right here, we have been warned of our fallenness. Right here, we have seen an urgent call to never compromise. Right here, we see that when we have compromised and we become aware of this, we need to cut it off and throw it away. Right here, we see ourselves in the need for constant, constant reformation until we die or until Christ comes again. May he find us faithful when he comes. Let's pray. Oh, Father. We praise you for the work of Nehemiah. You have remembered his work, oh God, because you recorded it in your scriptures for us to read and to imitate. You're still remembering, you're still answering Nehemiah's prayer to this day. Father, I pray that you would lead all of us to confess our sins, to repent of our waywardness, to embrace Jesus Christ. And then upon doing that, I pray that you would remember us, O God, for our good. And that memory would be vivid when Jesus Christ returns for us. What a great passage of Scripture. What a great Book What a great saga Ezra and Nehemiah in returning your people from exile, from your punishment to restore them to a hope and a future. What a great God you are. You merit our worship and our obedience. And I pray that you would rain down conviction on us when we're wayward. And you would rain down comfort on us when we're pure. I pray all this In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.